to welcome you if it's your first time here. I want to welcome you if you have been looking for a place to connect with other Christians. Let me go ahead and open us in prayer. And then we're going to talk about why I wrote the book Fractured Faith and sort of how that story came to be. All right. So God, as we now turn our attention from just small talk, getting comfortable, you know, Lord, those few minutes settling in here are just minutes to get our hearts um, here. Father, many of us have been school starting, kids to tend to, dinners, on and on, things, responsibilities, just to-do lists. And Father, for a moment now, in the next 30 minutes, we ask that your spirit would be heavy on us, that you would anoint us afresh with your presence, that you would fill us afresh with your with your mercy, with your goodness, with your grace. Turn our attention off of ourselves and onto you, Father. Lift our eyes to the heavenlies. Father, set our eyes on things above. Even as we look at our own lives, our own problems, our own stories, the things that are happening in our life, some things we don't want, some things that we welcome, Father, but all things ordained by you. So whether we live here in the United States or in Lebanon or Afghanistan, God, we know ultimately that you are the one who ordains our time and our places and you have a plan. And so God, even now as I pray, pray that your presence would be palpable all over the world with people who call upon you who know you and who are waiting anxiously for your return as we do. So bless this time and please, Father, use it for your glory. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Amen. Well, to understand the story of why I wrote Fractured Faith, I think we'd have to really go back all the way to the year 2000, 2001. Uh, It's funny, I tell a lot about sort of the dynamic in the book of what happened uh, in the beginning stages of uh, the path that led to what I call the near deconstruction of my faith. I didn't mean to be melodramatic in saying it that way, but it is the truth. But really to understand that context, I think you'd have to go back all the way to 2000, 2001. I was in a time in my life in my fellowship in pediatric ER in a city called Jacksonville, Florida, which I'd never heard about. Honestly, I'd never known about Jacksonville, Florida until maybe a few months before I moved there. Uh, My life at that point was great professionally, but it was sort of in a little bit of shambles personally. I uh, I won't get into that too much other than to say that I had broken off an engagement and I uh, just was sort of reeling, trying to figure out, I thought I was going this way and now I kind of had nowhere to go. I was in a bit of a transition and floundering a little bit and, and had not applied for a fellowship like I thought I, or I, I honestly, I wasn't sure what I was going to do. I thought I was going to get married and had a plan and, and that didn't work out. So I ended up... Um, at the last minute, I knew I had a love to, to be in emergency medicine, but I had missed the deadline by one year. And so at that point, you either had to wait a year or I was like, give up on that, just move up to Chicago, see what I'm going to do with my life. And, and in the middle of all of that, God just sort of really shoved me into Jacksonville, Florida, where a space for fellowship opened up at the last minute. So when I arrived to Jacksonville, Florida, I was in a, in a, in a very... Um, uh, uh, blinded state to the goodness of God in my life at the time. I was overwhelmed by what was happening to me personally, but I started my fellowship sort of in, in a fog. Uh, and I, as I made my way out of that fog, trying to work out what had happened to what I thought had been God's will for my life and what was actually happening in my life, uh, God really, honestly, it was a crisis of faith, even looking back. And out of that, 
I was given the opportunity to teach a Bible study. And it, that's a summary of a very long process. In fact, in the book that I first wrote, Thrive, tells a bit more about that story. And I cover a lot of what, what I just summed up in a couple of sentences in Fractured Faith in a deeper fashion when I talk about some of the disappointments in my life. This was definitely a season of deep disappointment. And so when I started teaching that Sunday school class, something really shifted in, in my heart. God had used the year before that time to kind of draw me back to him from a place of questioning him to a place of surrender. And so by the time I started teaching that class, it was an unexpected surprise in my life. You know, God sometimes does that. You, you, you'd never plan on doing something. And then when you start doing it, you go, man, I didn't realize this was what I was created to do. And my love to teach the Bible really had that strong of a, it's like when you guys who are married met your husbands. I don't know if all of you had that experience, but many of you talk about when you just knew, it's like love at first sight. Teaching the Bible had that kind of impact in my life. I knew after teaching for a few weeks that that's what I was called to do. And so as the year and a half of doing that in my church with a lot of support and favor and growth in the class that was happening, honestly, I could see God's hand pointing in that season. I felt like God really called me vocationally, meaning full time to teach the Bible. I didn't feel called to leave medicine, but I, I was that certain that that was the plan that God had for my life. And so it was a surprise to me that at the end of my fellowship, as I looked for places to work in Jacksonville, I realized there were, there were no hires that year for the job that I had trained to do. I was in a very small number of positions for my job in pediatric emergency medicine. And that year they had filled all the positions and they were not looking for a new person. And so I ended up in Chicago. God worked that out in another story. We won't dwell there, but I came to Chicago convinced of God's direction, but absolutely uncertain of how he would play out my calling in this new city. I went from a church where I was very well known and very connected and with a thriving ministry, even though it was still on the smaller side, it was thriving, there's a lot of energy, to a city where I wasn't even a member of a local church. I didn't know of a local church. And so I started visiting, you know, one of the local churches in the city where I lived and, and just, just felt that immense loss. I didn't have living with power. I wasn't doing anything in ministry. And so those few years, by the way, my second book, Stripped, is about, and, and it's called Stripped, because it felt during that season that I was stripped of everything that mattered to me at that time. It's funny, even looking back now, how God, um, when you think, you know, in your head, you think, man, things can't get any worse than this. Like, little did I know what would happen, like, years down the road. But in that season, it felt like this was the hardest season of my life. It was even harder than what had happened to me with the broken engagement, because it was almost like with the broken engagement, finding this vocation and teaching the Bible felt like it almost explained God. Like you almost, when things happen in your life, I think we sometimes look for an explanation of for the bad. And in my mind, when I started teaching the Bible, I think I sort of felt like, well, clearly that's why my engagement ended. That's why I didn't marry the person I was supposed to marry because God had this in mind for me. So when I moved to Chicago, those first few years felt a bit like a betrayal from God. Like I wasn't really connected with any church, any ministry. And so it was hard for a while until, and this is where this, this, bring you up to speed to the church hurt, which is sort of the underling of the story of fractured faith, until I went and visited the church that I eventually became a member of and served as a women's ministry director. I remember the first time my mom asked me to go with her to a Christian conference that she was going to for Christian counselors. 
And I'm telling you, I remember the moment my pastor walked into that room. I could tell there was something special happening in that room. He had a lot of energy, very charismatic. He ended up preaching that night. The message moved me tremendously. Anyone who's watching this uh, podcast or listening to the podcast or watching this YouTube or, or this Facebook Live now, uh, who has been to that church understands that moment when you first heard the message brought with that much passion and it changed my life. And I remember even though I, I lived in the city, it was a good 45 to 50 minute drive at the time and, and I wasn't committed to move, but what started happening is that every few weeks I would call the church and ask if they were opening another campus. Eventually, they did open another campus, which is when I started going to the church. By then, I had a blog, and I had tried to give God whatever was in my hand and to serve him, still convinced that God had me, uh, called me to teach the Bible. And so when I started going to that church with all that was happening in that church, it felt more than just a person who was attending a church. It felt like my calling and my life and everything that happened to me at this point was intersecting with this path of this church and that God had moved me to Chicago indeed to serve in this church to fulfill the calling that he had for me. And so I think a lot of times when you hear about people talking about church hurt, I think it's sometimes if you're not really deeply connected to your church, it's hard to fully understand it. You know, I think there's certain church traditions where you go to church on Sundays, maybe on Easter, on Christmas, and it has a different feel that what, than what happens in many of the Protestant churches or the evangelical churches where people um, are intensely focused in every part of their life on making God first. And part of that calling is, of course, the local church. And so it didn't take long for me to dive deep into serving in that local church. And it didn't take long for me to, to actually become involved in more teaching. And it felt in that season that everything that God had spoken to me about in Jacksonville in a season when he was birthing this vision for teaching the Bible was coming to fruition in the local church. And uh, I remember another time, years, a couple years, maybe three or four years of my being at the church uh, sensing that God even had a, a more direct sense in my heart that, that somehow my life would intersect with the pastor and his family. And, and it all just had a very high divine energy to it, which even looking back, I don't, I don't, I don't think that we were making it up. I think people who were in that environment, I don't think we're making it up, but I think that there was something bigger than us. And there's a very popular podcast right now that Christianity Today is doing that describes the same phenomenon that what, what we lived through, we meaning the people who ended up walking through that sort of tsunami of, 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 of what felt like God just moving mightily in the lives of people and then eventually come crashing down on us. And so for years, it felt so much bigger than us. And, uh, and of course, if you've read the book, or if you've heard me tell my story, you know that eventually um, things started falling through the cracks. Uh, the leaders that we thought were untouchable was almost like if you were a teenager and you grew up and found out that your parents were not perfect. You know, it's, it's a sort of that transition from being a toddler thinking your parents are perfect. One day you wake up and realize, man, they're really not. I don't know what, when that happened for you, but, but I remember when the cracks started showing up in the leadership structure of the church. And, and I, I even remember vividly the explanations that we would have. And there came a point of walking through those cracks that uh, one Sunday I realized we were spending more time rehashing what happened and those cracks in the church than we were the goodness of God. And I knew that we were headed down a path that I had not anticipated and that really was tearing me away from the Lord. And so it took a few months after that before I had the guts to leave. Um, in Fractured Faith, I walk you through sort of what happened and, and a little bit more of the emotion that rode in that season. 
But I, I think the background to that is important because I think by the time I left, and I genuinely believe that when people talk about church hurt, it is not an overnight decision to leave a church. It's rarely an overnight decision to leave a church. It's typically a process of agony and of, 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 of sort of weighing sort of the sense of, for me, it was a sense of calling. By then, I, I had just, I remember I had just published a couple of my books. Thrive came out in May of the year and, and Strict was planned on coming out in October. And I ended up leaving somewhere at the end of August. So in terms of timing, there couldn't have been a worse timing for my ministry. At the time, my ministry didn't consist of a team. It was a nonprofit, but it was me. I didn't have an assistant. I, we didn't have much other than we were starting to, to, to publish, but we had Bible studies that we had um, created books. My assistant, Bonnie, who's still a dear friend of mine, um, was working hard to turn the teaching into a product that we could use and, and really had so many dreams that were just squelched in that season when, when I finally felt like God was saying, leave. And, um, and this is, I think, critical, both, you know, I, I've mentioned a couple times, and I think, I think this thread is important, because I think so many of those big decisions, you know, I think back about even ending my engagement, and then later going to Jacksonville, and then later being called to teach the Bible, and then later moving to Chicago, and then later starting to go to a church, and then later leaving a church as a Jesus worshiping, you know, Bible believing follower of Jesus who has lived as far as I know, as obediently as I can. These were not decisions that were made lightly. There was prayer, there was thought in every one of those decisions so that by the time the decision happens, you feel in your mind like somehow God is going to justify your yes, that God is going to bless your obedience. And, uh, and though I had seen that pattern of blessing in other situations, as an example, when I moved to Jacksonville, I had uh, said yes to go to Jacksonville, said yes to start in the church, and God had blessed by giving me this calling to teach the Bible, and then later a job in Chicago, and later the church to go to. But now, for the first time in my life, or maybe you know, one of the few times in my life, I hit a crisis where I said yes to the Holy Spirit without a question in my mind and heart that this was the right decision, and what I expected would happen, well, the very opposite happened. Instead of seeing God vindicate me, I knew the moment I left that this would not be as easy or as smooth as I thought it would be. And, and the losses came fast and they came hard. And I, I knew I'd lost a lot. Now, the, one of the blessings in that time is that there were a few other people that I loved who had left. And so I wasn't alone in a sense, uh, but we were all um, broken together. And uh, uh, many would follow after us. And eventually it would take a good, I think I'd left 2013, and it would take a good six years before the whole thing would sort of unravel to the point where now it's like a thing of the past. And so, and so in those six years, uh, personally for me, it was a season where I, uh, the ministry as I knew it had stopped. Uh, I still had a podcast. I still had, but, but I no longer had Bible teaching material from the church to teach. I still was, well, I was invited to speak, but a lot of the associations from that church would stop. And I knew going into this journey that there would be some hits. Um, I, I lost my friends, um, I lost uh, my connections. I lost my pastor. I lost the uh, pouring of God's word into my life week after week. And so, you know, it's easy even now to say this, and go, well, you, why'd you leave? Well, I think looking back now, most people would attest that it was clearly the right thing to do at the time. Um, 
we were walking through it, I think that was really the big wrestling match that I had with God is, is did we do the right thing? You know, I think, I think, I think being a Christian isn't always as, as simple as we'd like it to be. You know, we want to one plus one equals two, you know, you might be walking it right now. Maybe you're in a marriage and you're like, I don't know, like you, you, you nothing major is happening. You don't, you could leave. Maybe there has been some things that could, but you're not leaving. And people, why are you in what? And, and nothing is so easy to say yes or no, gray, black or white. There's a lot of gray areas. And, and in those few months after leaving, I think there was a lot of that sort of questioning in my mind. Um, I, I think the difficulty came not so much in the first few months, but maybe two or three years later, uh, when the questions went from God, why, why isn't this playing out like I thought this would to God, do you love them more than you love me? And this us against them sort of journey and mentality started, which is, I think, when the deep darkness in my soul um, took root. And, um, you know, I've been thinking a little bit, and I want to move into some some scripture here in a second, because, uh, you know, I, 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 I tell the story a lot more succinctly in the book. I really do. And of course, I wrote it and edited. And I think you'll, you'll sort of get a deeper glimmer of what was going on in my soul during those times. But I think you get a little bit of a sketch now. But um, and so, you know, a lot of people talk about the dark night of the soul. The dark night of the soul is, is really all it is, is a season of not hearing from God very clearly and wondering, you know, God, are you, are you there? Uh, you know, meanwhile, I was continuing to function in, in ministry. I had speaking engagements. We were doing, you know, stuff on online. I mean, it wasn't like those things stopped. In fact, I jotted down just um, uh, some of m- some, uh, you guys know, I like bullet points. And so, you know, and think about my story. I, I think one of the shocking things now, even looking back, is that I thought I was past deconstruction. I, I just didn't think I was a person who would deconstruct. And, and what I mean when I say deconstruction is a person who would question the things that she believed, a person who would question the God that she believed. And I think we all question superficially, but this was a season where I deeply questioned. And I think because so much of the uh, pain that had happened in my life uh, was this sense where a church community and and the pastor and the people in the church, it felt like they were, like I was the wrong one, like I was the guilty one, like I was the one who needed to be punished. And so it became sort of like, like you, it became a mental game where I think Satan loves mind games. I've taught you guys in this community about, um, about spiritual warfare. And I think Satan loves to get his foot and his toe and then his foot in where he can pitch you against God. And it became sort of a sense of like, 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 what what just happened? Like, God, are, are you on their side? And I'm on to, so here's a person who I thought that would never happen to me. I just thought I was past deconstruction. I was, I thought because I was so involved in the local church and because I was really trying to live obediently, not just that I think I was past deconstruction, but I think I was, I thought I was protected from deconstruction. I think there was sort of this sense of shieldedness, like somehow nothing bad would happen to me. Like somehow, um, like, like, because I was living obediently, like, I'd never veer off course, you know, I, like, somehow just, and, and, and in some ways, in hindsight, maybe I was protected, because in a sense, I'm, I'm still here, and I'll, I'll get to that in a second, but, but boy, I mean, it, it, it takes you by surprise when you find yourself questioning the faith in, in a time, in a season, in a, in a personality, and you just think, this, this isn't me, in fact, I wrote Resolved, 10 ways to stand strong and live what you believe in that season, almost in an effort to convince myself to be strong. But inside um, was a, a isolation, not just from other Christians, which was very pronounced, but also uh, from God, a sense of um, 
of, of, of wanting to protect the deepest portions of my heart from God who might not do or act the way that I was hoping he would. And, and the disillusionment in that season of my life was deep. Uh, I, I tried to perform and power my way through deconstruction. You know, I produced a lot. We kept the podcast going, but then Irina was part of the team and, and we, uh, we did a whole lot. And I think one of the, the, the things that can arise in a season of deconstruction is that we can fight it initially. The questions that come to our minds, we can fight it. We can just just create a, a schedule. And, a, and by the way, the whole branch is born out of that. I think the biggest mistake we do is to fill our times and to get to this performance. I'm working for God. Everything's going to be okay. Sort of modality rather than leaning into the pain. Because I think it's when you lean into the pain that you can sort of actually hear God. But you can be so frustrated by what's happening that you can it, you try to power your way through the pain. And it just doesn't work this way. It's like a wound that needs healing. And I just don't think I saw it in that season. And then, but then there came a point where I thought I was past the point of deserving God's grace um, because I had these questions about God that I wasn't really sharing with people very deeply. And because I had these feelings of anger and of bitterness and, and because I would numb the pain with things that sometimes where I talk about them in the book, some of you who have read them, the book, uh, read the chapter on marshmallows, and that can be anything that will numb the pain from binging on Netflix, whatever it is that feels good in the moment. But I remember, I remember, um, feeling at one point in the last few years, the sense that I was past the point of deserving God's grace. And I think that's probably the point when you're closest to deconstruction is when you can no longer just open your hands and receive the grace of God. And so I was thinking this uh, last couple of days, if I had to sum up in one word, sort of the, the, the feeling, if I had to sum up a feeling, because I was thinking about the Bible and what might be a good text, like who, who in the Bible, I was trying to think about the biblical passage that I could use to, to, to sort of help you understand a little bit of what happened, how am I here today, how, why am I still here, and, and, and I, I started thinking about well, what, what is the emotion that pervaded that season of my life, and, and you know, I would have to be honest and say that the biggest emotion in that season was uh, the emotion of shame, it was a deep shame in, in my soul, in my heart. I think to think that, you know, to, to sort of understand that you're the person who's teaching those things to others but cannot apply them to themselves brings great shame on you. I think to, to see yourself as the person who puts your trust in a system, in a church, in a pastor, uh, to, to be that sucker in a sense. You know, I think you look at yourself and you go, how, how, how was I so stupid? And, and of course, it's deeper than that. I think you all understand that. And, um, and luckily, I've written the book about it. So I think I understand it a little bit better now. But, but I think that sense of shame, like, how would I ever fit into a church again? How could my ministry su survive this? But beyond that, how could I pray to God who in my mind I had accused of things that were wrong, were lies, and, and, and really the sense, I think when you think about the feeling like you're past the point of deserving the grace of God, I think um, when you think that, there's, there's tied to that the sense of deep shame, like I've done something wrong somehow, this is on me, there's something, I tried too hard, I'm, I, 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 
believed the wrong things, I expected the wrong things, and, and I think uh, many people who have grown up probably with a sense of, I think my background tends to be from a bit of a stronger legalistic uh, background. I think we have sort of this, this bear on our shoulder that I think ultimately, I genuinely believe that God's plan in all of this has been to shake that bear off the shoulder. Man, we don't deserve God's grace, do we? We don't. And so when I think about the Bible story that most closely uh, parallels um, the emotions, not so much the details of the story, but the emotions of what happened. And I just want to share with you a few thoughts on it here as we wrap up. It's John chapter four. It's John chapter four and the woman at the well. And, and I think about how, you know, people deconstruct, people question what they believe, people go through deep pain and some never come back to the faith. I don't, I don't know why. I, I really think that's the most baffling question. Why do some people work their way through it and land on the side of faith? And why do others walk away? Would they ever, maybe they never knew the Lord. Maybe it's, they haven't come back yet. We don't know. We don't know. And our job isn't to, to, to figure that out in the now. Our job is to love those people. And I think one of the things about sharing my journey and my story and seeing so many people in the church right now, I and mean, one of the reasons of talking about this, it's uncomfortable for me to talk about this. I don't find joy in, in, in uh, you know, airing out my laundry. Like I'm a private person. Person and but but one of the gifts of that is that is that you can show compassion, understanding to people. And I think anyone who's walked through a painful experience, maybe your pain isn't church related. Maybe you've walked through a bad divorce. Maybe you've you've struggled with you know sin in your life. Whatever it is that has left you disillusioned and broken. I think I think maybe you've made bad financial decisions and and you're just like you you feel so stupid because you knew better. And and think about the richness of your story and how it can impact those who who are walking through it right now. And so the greatest gift that we can give others is sharing. Our deep stories of pain, but 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 I think about that that miracle of sitting here now sharing with you, and I, I still struggle with not struggle free in my life. A, a, a nice um, man who follows our ministry recently emailed me and says, "Man, you you know I, I love your." He read the book Stripped and said, "I loved your book Stripped, but really you haven't been through a lot of pain. You've just the way I see it, you've just gone through a broken engagement." Like whoop de doo, and I thought. Man, how funny we are, like how funny we judge other people's pain, how funny we, we assume certain things about people. You know, people don't always tell you everything. Part of how we hide is that we don't tell people everything. And yet, um, and, 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 and the, the point of it is uh, when I think about what the dynamic that allows me to even be here and talking about these things is, is exactly what happened to the woman at the well in John chapter four. And so the story in John chapter four goes like this. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar near the field that Jacob had given to his son, Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. And so Jesus sends the disciples away. This is just Jesus. And he goes out of his way, by the way, to go through Samaria, which was considered like less than, like no one went through Samaria. The, the people of Israel, the Jewish people thought they were beneath them. Samaritans were beneath them. And, and so Jesus purposefully goes there and you say, why? Well, here's why. A woman from Samaria in verse seven of John four, a woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? The Jews have no dealings with, Samarit with Samaritans. This is what John is writing, and he's, he's given us some tips about what I just told you. Anyway, verse 10, Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? 
Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? You might say, man, what do you have in common with her, Lena? You don't even have a boyfriend. I don't think I've been on five dates in the last five, 10, 25 years, but that's probably true. But listen, here, here, here's my observation from this chapter that, connected, that have connected with my soul. And, and I think you, you can clearly pick up on some of the shame themes uh, that this woman was living through. And whether your sin is that you're living with some guys or some woman, and, or maybe you're ashamed of your past, whatever it is, here, here's what I see happen, which was the pivot in her life. And this is what I believe has been the pivot in my life and what this book, Fractured Faith, is about. Um, I I wrote down these four, of course, bullet points, because that's what I do. Number one, I am never, here's here's the, 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 the miracle of Jesus, if I may use that. I am never so broken that Jesus doesn't prioritize loving me. When I read the story, this is the first thing that comes up in my mind. We are never so broken. You are never so broken that Jesus does not prioritize loving you. This woman was broken. Uh, People in the village probably understood that she was a little bit broken, but I don't know if they had even had a conversation with her of late. We don't know much about that other than she went to the well at noon in the heat to fill water when nobody else was there uh, because she was broken and because she had pain in her life. And Jesus goes out of his way to a town that nobody wants to go to, to talk to a woman. And that, in those days, men didn't talk to women. Rabbis didn't talk to women. It was, everything about this is upside down from what the culture expects and demands. In fact, the disciples come and they're shocked. Why are you talking to a woman, let alone a Samaritan? And so there's so much happening here that goes against the grain of culture. And yet Jesus goes out of his way for one purpose and one purpose alone, and it was to meet this woman on a side of the well in the middle of the heat of the day. He didn't do it because he needed a drink of water. He did it because he had planned divinely an encounter with her. And if you're finding yourself broken today, I don't know what your story is, and you're watching this, whether you're watching it now on Facebook Live or you're watching it later or listening on the podcast, listen to me. If you came to this evening, to this moment in a broken state, wondering how in the world you ended up in this darkest night of your soul, listen, Jesus makes it his priority to love you. And so he digs past her defenses. He doesn't sit on the side like you and I might. 
Or you just, man, I'm not going to talk to anybody here. I'm just here minding my own business. No, he digs past her defenses. He converses with her. He pushes past her. He, he, he's so drawn to her. He doesn't come to judge her. Listen, what she was doing, he didn't, Jesus doesn't believe in, in the life that she was living. He came to free her from the life, but he doesn't judge her. I talk a little bit about that in one of the chapters in the book, the difference between loving someone and judging them. And so we would have tried to win her by telling her, change your way, man, leave the guys that you're with. But he, he digs deeper than that. He understands that the reason that she's going after those relationships is because she's hurting and she's broken. And so Jesus has a way of, of, of confronting the truth about where she's at and drawing her out of it. Of course, he's a Messiah. Like you might say, well, how do we do that? Well, he's living in us. And so part of the path of us finding this healing is to be able to, by his grace, be a vessel to offer it to others. And so he understands her. And then you think about it, how would a man who, 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 who was a Jewish man and who was a, called to be the, if he's the savior, like think about it, how would he understand this woman who was a Samaritan who had broken relationships because he, of course, we know that he was God and man in one, but he also had a heart of compassion. And so he prioritized loving her. It was a priority in his life. And it was a priority for him to love me in a season when I was desperately broken. Here's a second thing that helped bring me into a place where I can have even this conversation with you today. I am never so hidden that Jesus doesn't prioritize seeing me. I am never so hidden that Jesus doesn't prioritize seeing me. Listen, you are not so hidden. You might think you're hidden because we're through a screen, right? Or through a podcast, through the airwaves, like nobody's seeing you. You're sitting in your room with COVID. If you're like me, an introvert, you, you love COVID. Like I missed the lockdown. Like I liked when nobody was around, Like right? Some of us are like that. We're like, man, why can we go back into that mode? Listen, we don't need to be in that mode. We can be out in public. We can be on a train full of people and a plane full of people. We are a people who have learned to hide and we are so good at hiding. I spent years of my life after I left my old church and feeling disappointed and disillusioned with Christians. Man, I showed up to church. I spoke at churches, but I was hiding. Very much like the woman at the side of the well. She was there, but she was hiding. You say, how was she hiding? Well, she, had a, she was hiding beneath a veneer of religion. She gets into a religious conversation with the Messiah. Think about it. She's telling him about what the, she believes. Like, like, it's, it's, like she's a... She's living with five guys at different places. She's the one who's speaking religious. Why? Because she's hiding behind the veneer of religion. She's hiding behind the veneer of isolation. I'm fine alone. I don't need friends. I'm good. I'm not even lonely. I'm good. I can be on the well by my own. I don't need the people in the village. We all do that, don't we? We do it in the church world. I really think that is an epidemic in the church right now. When we show up on Sunday, we get our fill up, checking off the list. God, I got, went to church, but man, just don't ask me to get involved. We go to a small group. We say the right things. I did that for years. I'm still tempted to do it. I have to ask God to help me to fight that desire to hide. We have a veneer of logic and pragmatism. She goes through logically. Here's what I believe. This is, this is something that we're seeing now. Like everyone is so logical, but like we forget that we're both spirit and truth, that we've got feelings and a mind. It's both and. We've got, we, we have a, 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 a veneer. We hide behind the veneer of pleasure. This woman had these guys that she would live from relationship to relationship to relationship. Why? Because she's convinced herself she could be happy. Maybe at the beginning she was happy. Maybe she would meet somebody, fall in love, be like, man, this is the answer to all my problems. But it didn't take long for her to realize, man, this is not the answer to my problems. So here she was living with a guy and she was still seeking and still hiding. And yet she was never so hidden that Jesus didn't prioritize seeing her do you know tonight that you're seen, that Jesus sees you, God sees you, not in a, he sees what you're doing, he's coming to get you, but in an invitation 
to come out and be loved by him. Here's another one. I'm never so stuck or enslaved that Jesus doesn't prioritize freeing me. I'm never so enslaved that, people does, that Jesus doesn't prioritize freeing me. It is the priority of his day to free her from the shackles that have kept her bound. And he, he, she, she doesn't even, maybe she knew how shackled she was. She's shackled to whatever expectation she had of people. She's shackled to whatever illusion she had that the men in her life would bring her joy. She's shackled by her life that she thought, I mean, what, I mean, wonder, what did she think about in the heat of the day? Think about how many of you, I went on a walk today and I had a little mini crisis of faith trying to figure out, you know, how things are going to play out with the retreat. We've invested so much. Is it going to take off with all of these things and just kind of going through this, like this, this sense of like enslavement to to all of these expectations that we bring to the table of our, of our prayer life and of our conversation with God, when, when all he ever wants us is just come just as we are. And so we become enslaved to, to all the things that we think will make us happy. And Jesus, with his truth, with the love that he gives her, with the tone of voice, with his, with his very presence, he draws her out of what is enslaving her. He gives her his friendship. I mean, you hear the conversation and it doesn't take long to start reading. This is one of the longest conversations that Jesus has with another human in scripture in the gospels. Think about it, go through. There's little passages here and there. This is the longest conversation you'll catch. Jesus having someone you sense a friendship. He offers her himself. He gives her complete understanding. That's what I'm saying when he says he doesn't judge her, though he doesn't probably doesn't approve of her. I mean, we know what the Ten Commandments are. We know what God's heart is. He doesn't come at her with a hammer. He draws her. He invites her out of her pain into his presence. That's what happened to me in the course of my reconstruction. The fourth and last thing, and I'll end with this, I am never so isolated that Jesus doesn't prioritize reconnecting me. I genuinely believe God's heart for us is to be together in fellowship it is not lost on me that the analogy that Christ uses in the church is one of a body, members of a family. We're adopted into his family. We're called children of God, brothers and sisters. I mean, this language isn't a language of Western Christianity. This is biblical language. This is God's language to what he sees. Christ is the groom and the church is the bride. There's relationship. And all through the, the, the scriptures, when you read about the relationship that God wants us to have with him, he wants us to come to him and call him Abba, Father. There's an intimacy and a closeness and fellowship. And so this idea that we can be remote, even I've recently floated, I haven't read the article, but some articles have come through my attention from different organizations talking about you can't be in a church virtually. I sort of agree. I mean, I know we're doing this virtual community, but, but this can only take us so far. That's why the live sometimes is so much better than just uh, me putting a video on. Why? Because we're humans and God wants us to interact. And by the way, if this is the only interaction you have, I, I, it's, it's not enough. And so here's this woman, you go, I mean, she's on her own. The villagers, you know, they, they're gossiping about her. They hate her. She's like the stigma. Like, don't, she's got the scarlet letter on, you know, like, like she, whatever the scarlet letter is for her during those days. And, and, and Jesus frees her of the burden of her shame. And so the very people, what, did, did you not notice? Why, did you want to read this chapter? Because when you get to the end of it, she leaves her vest, her little water thing. I mean, she came to get water. She drops it. She didn't, she just, all of a sudden she has a different priority and she runs back to the very people that she's hiding from. So it becomes that the very people that she's left, that she hates, become the very people that she runs to, to tell them about this Jesus who has just opened her eyes to his marvelous goodness and love. This is grace. This is miraculous. This is breakthrough. 
And, and, and I think about the story I, a couple times in the book. I write about how the very, you know, I left the church. It was the church that I felt wounded me, and yet it was the church that ended up saving me. Uh, I mean, Jesus used his people. It was, uh, it was unexpected. And uh, I'll get into more of that if you get the book and read more about it. I know my pastor's wife watches here often, so if she's watching, Junan, I love you guys. You've been just such a blessing in my life. Never thought that I'd come back to church, that I'd be willing to put my guard down enough to be in a local church. Just this week, a couple of people from church have reached out, prayed with me. Man, it's just, it's just, it's, it's what God's heart for us is, is to be in healed, reconciled. These are, these are not the people that I had conflict with. These are new people, but still the con, we can, we can carry grudges in our heart without calling them grudges. We can, you know, you, you might have gone through a bad marriage and you, you might say, well, I'm never going to get married again. You might have, you know, you can, you had a bad boss, maybe worked at a church. I'm never going to work at a church again. We make these conclusions. And for me, because the pain that I endured was related to the church in my mind, I never wanted to be in another small group. And I certainly never wanted to be close to anybody in church again. And yet God's plan for us is that he'll reconnect us to the very people that sometimes we want to be protected from. I don't mean this in a scary way if you're being abused and you're like, I don't want to ever go back. I get that. I get that. I talk about that a bit more in the book. I'm not talking about people going back to dangerous places, but I'm talking about healthy, thriving relationships that draw us closer to the heart of God. I'm talking about God doing the impossible, the very people that she ran from us, who she runs back to, to tell them about all the marvelous goodness that she's just experienced. And it only gets better from there. There's a revival that happens in this town. If you keep reading, man, it baffles your mind how Jesus, with his love, with his eyes seeing the wounded, with his understanding and with the truth that freed her, would turn everything upside down so that what was fractured is now reconstructed and whole. And so um, we're whole at salvation. I get that. But so many Christians, I really genuinely believe that so many Christians right now are walking through immense pain, most of which has been at the hand of church leaders, at the hand of other people in the church, at the hand of uh, the, the types of places that we wouldn't have anticipated would cause us pain. And if that's you, I wrote the book for you. If that's you, even though I never would have thought that I would share this story with you, I always thought that I would just teach in a local church and things would take off and revival would happen. I never thought that I would struggle with this kind of pain related to the local church. And yet I pray that my story will be a source of healing for you. And so that's why I wrote Fractured Faith, finding your way back to God in an age of reconstruction. And I pray and I hope that it will be a place where you'll find healing.